Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. Today, we have a good friend of the show, Andrew Stamper, returning. We're going to tackle, uh, we're going to continue our best film series with Andrew's selection for today's episode, The Player by Robert Altman. But first, uh, let's give give Andrew a hearty welcome back to the show because it's been a hot minute, my friend. Hey, thank you very much. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to uh, be doing this again. It's been a minute, but I'm, I'm really... Uh, I'm really jazzed about uh, being back. So, for those of you who don't know, Andrew has relocated to Hotlanta, home hometown, ver- our second hometown, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, back in a uh, back in good old ATL, which is pretty fortuitous in some respects because of all the kind of uh, film production, TV production that gets done there. So, hopefully, you'll have an opportunity. To if nothing else, uh, go to some cool events. Yeah, it, it, it's really cool how uh, you know just the state of Georgia is kind of like the like the mini Hollywood. There's a lot of things happening here, and uh, I haven't really gotten in the scene, I would say, <laughs> but I have met uh, a few people that are working. I've met really at this point just mostly uh, stunt doubles, which is still really really cool uh, to meet to meet people on that side of it because if. If you've ever met a stunt double, they are, they're in, they're an interesting bunch. Right. That's what, that's what I've always heard as well. But, uh, we'll, uh, I'll let you take over and give us a synopsis of this movie since it was your choice. You, you yes. shall have the honors, my friend. All right. Thank you very much. Yes. So I went ahead and chose, uh, to do the player, which was the 1992 film by Robert Altman. Uh, for those that may or may not be familiar he made kind of like his big splash on the scene by doing the the film Nash um, in the early '70s, and then a few years later he did the movie Nashville, and he had some success in the '70s, and then he was I guess like hired to do the like the early '80s movie of Popeye, yeah, like the Popeye on the uh, like the the cartoon they did a live action one that starred Robin Williams and a bunch of other people, but as far as like a studio is concerned, the movie very much tanked. Even though it was still a pretty successful film, but like uh, it didn't exceed the expectations or really didn't meet the expectations that Hollywood had, and as a result, it kind of inadvertently blacklisted Robert Altman for a short period. He was still making films and what have you, but out of Hollywood, he kind of like relocated out of Hollywood and uh, moved over to Europe. But the movie The Player was kind of like his big return. So to speak to Hollywood, which is very, very ironic when you take the consideration of what this movie is about, yeah, which right. is which is kind of just like a uh, a look at Hollywood from the eyes of a studio executive. So our protagonist in this film is uh, this character Griffin Mill, and he's a studio executive, this big shot um, studio ex- executive who may or may not be kind of on the way out. Uh, of course, you know there's always somebody uh, aiming for your job in LA and uh, in specific, uh, specifically Hollywood and uh, Griffin has somebody um, kind of Larry Levy uh, who's looking looking over at him but anyway the plot of this movie focuses on the studio executive who's a bit of a jerk um, yeah I mean he's uh, yeah he, he's a bit of an asshole but he's receiving these death threats uh, from a writer that he pissed off for not you know, not taking a follow-up meeting after he said, hey, I'd, you know, I reach out to you. But anyway, the whole point of this movie is you follow a studio executive who receives these death threats, and he, he thinks he figures out who's sending these death threats. 
he goes to meet this writer and say, hey, you know, listen, I'm going to go ahead and offer you a deal. Let's go ahead and make this movie, but quit with the death threats. And the, the writer's like, well, you know, that's not me. Um, their situation escalates and uh, Griffin Mill ends up killing the writer, which then escalates the, uh, the chaos a little bit because we then find out that the, 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 the writer he killed was the wrong writer. So he still continues to receive these death threats and all the while he's being kind of pursued by the cops. And um, it's just without giving too much away of the film, because I imagine there are probably listeners that haven't seen this movie. The, the movie just really has a tendency to track the, the doings, if you will, that go on behind the scenes in Hollywood. But the, the, the greater underlying, one of the many underlying themes is the only thing that's worse than murder in Hollywood is a bad movie or an unsuccessful movie. So that's one of those things that they kind of explore in this movie, but it's kind of a, a satire, black comedy, film noir, um, love story, <laughs> right? like all wrapped up into one. There's a lot of things that, that Robert Altman explores in this movie, but at the end of the day, it's really just kind of a, um, a mere reflection at what was going on in Hollywood at the time when this movie was made in the you know, late eighties, early nineties. So is there, is this kind of, is this sort of in your top or top films kind of in a broad sense, or is this one that you just thought would yield a lot of interesting conversation? I'm just kind of curious what your, uh, why you chose this film in general yeah, to, so, to speak sure, about. Sure, sure, I mean, there's a, like a myriad of reasons why I chose this movie. One, I thought it would uh, provide a lot, of, a lot of discussion just based on the, the cameo factor. Uh, two, just all the little like nods to other, other movies that uh, this movie kind of um, pays homage to. And sure. uh, three, just the... The, just the cinematic aspect of way that Robert Altman filmed, you know, made this movie. We talk a lot about, um, you know, director of photography. And we talk about music and we talk about acting. We talk about all these things that make a good movie when we do these podcasts, right? And this movie, even though I wouldn't say that it carries a high special effects budget by any means, the the framing and the the missing scene, like uh. It, Everything that we see, the, the palette that Robert Altman used for this movie was really, really sharp for its day. Obviously, when we look at kind of just like the filters that cameras have and obviously the fashion of its time, it's kind of dated. But in many, many ways, this movie is still really visually impressive uh, with some of the things that done. Specifically, obviously, the opening scene that we had in the movie. Uh, there's this beautiful, like continuous seven minute uh, shot with overlapping dialogue, something else that Robert Altman loves to do is like overlapping dialogue and just many things that I loved. I also really liked the story of the, the whodunit, like, you know, are we going to find out who, who's, uh, who's threatening our protagonist? And we actually do, well, you have, (sighs) Griffin never ever necessarily finds out or we never really truly find out, but we we do see um, the the blackmailer, if you will, and then we actually we see him earlier in the movie. But you wouldn't really know unless you had like real like sharp rabbit ears, um, which is kind of cool. But 
So the mystery aspect is kind of something that I'm drawn to, the story aspect, but also just the very self-aware um, portrait that uh, that Robert Altman was making at Hollywood's expense. So just a multitude of reasons why I enjoy this movie. Well, good, good, because I'm I I did I find found this a bit challenging for my I guess the specific kind of mode of analysis that I'm kind of accustomed to doing. Sure. Um, and I I didn't really catch a lot of I think the visual elements that you spoke about i think probably i totally missed out on maybe but uh we'll, we'll uncover that when we discuss the cinematography but uh i mean i was you know i was kind of texting you earlier today about how i thought this film like it was so especially like you mentioned the fashion being so 90s like it was so weird like it was almost such a product of its time and like a particular moment in hollywood that seems like so it's almost like looking back on the fifties to a, to a certain degree in comparison to where Hollywood is now, you know what I mean? Sure. Which kind of, I don't know, is sort of disorienting for me in, in a little, in a certain sense. Um, just with how, I guess, I don't know. There's a certain, there's a different like approach to movies now, now that things are so like, I mean, even in its day, obviously you had the studio politics, the big egos, like all of that, sort of remains the same but i think even at the time that this movie was being made there was still like an element of that old studio boss like that's there was still like a a a shadow of that era left over before Mm -hmm. things really like got super you know focused on the profit like and again that sounds so ironic because that's sort of what this film is sending up but even like now looking back on it it seems kind of like Oh wow! You just wait to see, <laughs> wait. You see what's going to happen in the next twenty or thirty years, Robert Altman. I was like, yeah. I wonder what he would say now if he like looked if he made this movie now. You know, and that's just it. I think this is a film that you could retell. And I mean, this this movie. I mean, they've well. I mean, shoot. There 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 have been other movies that have had similar kind of looks at Hollywood from different you know different angles, right? I mean, you had like All About Eve in the nineteen fifties. You know, this is kind of like the the big movie of, um, you know, of the '90s. I'm sure there there you know there very well could be another one that that tells uh, in the in the era of the, the comic book um, the, co- the comic book Hollywood that we've got now, where everything is just um, you know Marvel's uh, like 25, 26 movie like venture of every you know like just branding everything in together. But so. There, I mean, there are certainly different eras, different things that you can go ahead and explore, and I think they could make something a, a player version in in twenty twenty. But yeah, it, it very much is a movie of its time, certainly. But the 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 bigger picture are still things that go on today, as far as trying to be um, a, a a writer or the way that Hollywood does try to pitch things with not necessarily so much as the script. And one thing that that I've just kind of observed as being a, I'm not gonna say struggling writer, but as a you know as a writer, uh, just just in conversations of listening to other people, that people really aren't interested so much in the script as how you can go ahead and package it. And in the '90s, maybe they packaged it with by giving it a big star. Uh, in today's terms, we tend to package movies by branding. Is the hard work already done? You know, I mean, you'll have movies like, um, you won't shoot any any comic book movie that 
you already know that an audience is going to come and see it because of the fact that it does have a Marvel or a DC or whatever associated with it. And I'm just using comic books as an example. There's a myriad of other other things that they do, but everything is about branding. Um, in the in the in the late '80s, early '90s, it will you go ahead and, and pair it like with a with a specific actor. And this movie does a really great job of kind of using uh, Bruce Willis and Julia Roberts yeah. repeatedly. Repeatedly, they talk about how uh, we can just go ahead and throw Bruce Willis in this movie, or <laughs> right. throw Julia Roberts in this movie, and then like kind of like the the humor uh, at the end of it is. They end up using Bruce Willis and Julia Roberts in a movie that they're making within this movie, which is hysterical. So there's just a lot of like meta things that they're doing within the movie. But even though Hollywood has changed in many ways, it has stayed the same because it still is about profitability. It's just what drives the profitability today is a little bit different than what was driving the profitability 20, 30 years ago. Or in the case of like All About Eve, what was going on in the 1950s. I just have to say that was uh, that was great analysis, man. You're you're back on you're on fire today. You can't, but you're not rusty at all. You're totally comes out guns blazing. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> like RoboCop over here. <laughs> but yeah, I I think uh, one of the coolest elements, and this a little bit reminded me to some degree a little bit of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang in a certain sure. sense, maybe just to that sim- similar kind of uh, I guess in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang there were more like actual fourth wall breaks than this right. being more um, just sort of that metatextual um, analysis or that that kind of component of the film. Sure. Yeah, no, and and I, I think there there is, I, I think, um, you know, a callback to another uh, another movie that I had did that quite wasn't necessarily up your, uh, up your alley, but it, just a couple movies that, yeah, just kind of explore L.A. And... Yeah. Uh, and I mean, shoot, we, we had Blade Runner, right? I mean, that was LA. Wasn't <laughs> right, it? Yeah. So just, just exploring LA at different times in history. Yeah, for uh, sure. That, that, that'll be our podcast. Basically just looking at, at just LA as a whole. Well, uh, I, I would just say, don't like, don't feel bad if I don't like a movie. Like that's, that's perfectly fine. Like this is good because you've actually exposed me to films. I, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have watched the player. Sure. I, I probably wouldn't have seen, yeah, definitely wouldn't have seen The Vanishing. So I like to think of you as like maybe this, and this is not this is not a fair metaphor, but I you you're like Scully a little bit, and I'm like a little bit Mulder. So, so you just <laughs> Listen, have to bear, it, bear with it, me. It, the truth is out there somewhere. Hey, I'm I'm, I'm I have no problems being uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Scully to your Mulder. <laughs> um. But yeah, so um, I, I I don't really know. Uh, I mean, this is your podcast, so yeah, wherever well, you want to go from I've, there. I've got some. Uh, I wanted to go over a few uh, kind of general details about the film first before we jump into acting. Um, one on a sort of a comment note is it's sort of a a film nerd or dorks sort of wet dream in a lot of respects, just due to the callbacks to classic films like The Bicycle Thief, A Touch of Evil. Um, you know, just the even like the graduate and there's Mm -hmm. so many cameos and I mean, it's an unbelievable amount of cameos. This movie could be renamed cameo, the movie by Robert (laughs) Altman for sure. And I think that might be the episode title. There we go. But, uh, (laughs) so Altman actually, I think this was actually like an independent film technically and on a seven and a half to $8 million budget, which is pretty insane when you think about, 
the amount of cameos. Obviously, I think Altman just got these people to come on for like their day rate or something crazy. Yeah. So just to kind of like even throw back to your like Thin Red Line movie, right, where so many people when they heard that Robert Altman was so so and so like back, everybody wanted to be involved. They all like, well, well, shit, you know, I, I just want to work for this guy. So some people would work for the daily rate. Some people like would donate uh, would donate their, you know, their salary just in general. And um, I mean, shit, uh, John Cusack was in both films. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, he's just like I just want to work with these people which is kind of funny but yeah the movie had I mean well over I don't know well over 50 different cameos of actors playing themselves and I think one of the things I remember Altman talking about was he he thought it'd be silly you know if he's doing this whole movie about about Hollywood specifically and be like reeling off like fake actors so he wanted to immerse himself around real like the real Hollywood people being themselves and yeah, so with that, you just get everywhere they go. You, you know, they're 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 having these uh, these little breakfasts, or they're they're running around town, or they're going to spas, or or what or whatever it is, right? And uh, it, it's just what was going on in LA at the time. But Altman wanted to go ahead, and no matter where we were, we would see a real life celebrity being being a version of themselves. Which I think thematically, we'll circle back around to this, but I thought that was one of the most interesting questions, and I think Altman was definitely aware of this because I heard him say it in the uh, director's commentary that there was a certain tension of like, he didn't really give the actors that appeared and did these cameos and had speaking lines in the film a lot of direction. It was more so like the question of how do, how do you tell an actor to portray themselves? Like it's not a not a question that they get posed a lot they're always mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. someone else and that whole concept of okay well that this actor is portraying them their real self in a movie in a fake reality that to me is one of probably the coolest or most interesting idea that i like latched onto while watching the movie yeah but i do want to go through um i'm going to list off some of the notable um cameos but i wanted sure. to at least introduce kind of our primary players, uh, because I guess uh, Tim Robbins is our star. And then we have uh, Brian Jones, plays a pretty big role in the film, who ironically was also in another movie we did, uh, Blade Runner, Mm -hmm. as Leon, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, 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 he was Leon. And then we have, uh, is it Peter Gallagher? Yep. Yeah, Peter Gallagher from Eyebrows, <laughs> right? From uh, what the OC is probably now his biggest like thing he's known for the most. Really, that's what people think. Of? Uh, that's what I think of. I can't think oh. of anything else that really stands out. <laughs> but I know he's been in other stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, yeah. He uh, American Beauty. He he was in uh, Sex Live and uh, Sex Lies and Videotape. I think is the movie for oh, yeah. me that I right, think of. Okay. Because with him, James Spader, and I believe, was that Andy McDowell? Yeah, it was also yeah, Andy yeah, McDowell yeah. who's in this film. Uh, and let's see, what else? Um, I know I saw him in an Adam Sandler, like, bad comedy where they he, they literally talk about his eyebrows. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, you know, many, many movies he's been in. But I think for me, 
I think of him as like the creepy real estate agent in uh, American Beauty. I think of him from Sex Lies videotape. Um, Buddy Kane, that was his name in American Beauty. I was trying to think of the, the name of that uh, that real estate agent. Uh, what else do I remember him in? Anyway, the, not important, but Billy Gall- uh I'm sorry, Peter Gallagher. He's been in a lot of stuff. We have uh, Greta Schachi. Shachi? Yeah, which I wasn't something. really familiar with her so much either, but she's yeah. sort of the romantic interest. Yeah. So the interesting thing about her, right? She's, I don't know if she's Italian originally, but I mean, she's got a very much like Italian name, right? Yeah. But what I remember hearing about her and one of the things I was always kind of fascinated. Now, I don't know if this is true. This is something I may, might want to look up like on Snopes or something. I don't know. But one of the things about her that was kind of interesting about her casting was the fact that this actress is an actress apparently who had has appeared topless in several films. And Robert Altman obviously was doing this whole movie about Hollywood. And Hollywood has this whole thing about, you know, boobs, right? You know, just or like just the, the naked female body is something that's really uh, that Hollywood is. I think they even talk about the movie, you know, uh, you know, uh, tits and whatever. I forget was it. I can't remember what the dialogue was, but they talk about throwing boobs in the movie. Well, there's a sex scene between her and Tim Robbins in this movie. And this actress, uh, Greta Schiacci, who has done nude scenes on camera before, at least a couple times from what I remember like reading. And yet like the, 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 the sex scene that they shot was from her like neck up. You know, so it was almost like Robert Altman playing with like the expectations of the audience at that time. Like, oh, you know, we're going to, you know, she's going to be the love interest and she's going to be naked. Well, they, the, 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 the sex scene that they have in this movie, the one sex scene that they have in this movie, you just see two sweaty people from like the neck up, which I think is kind of just a really funny way of just messing again with uh, Hollywood's expectations and the audience's expectations on, on this actress at the day. And I think that's pretty sharp because also you have, I think that was the joke being too on this that Cynthia Stevenson, who portrayed Bonnie Chereau, did Mm. do like this topless, very like not, not really sexy scene. Oh, right. When they're in the, yeah. When they're in the hot tub. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And she's Mm -hmm. sort of reading him the script. Um, She's, and she's reading him a kind of like one of these, uh, I don't know, it's like a romantic sex scene from, from a film. Right. It's and, funny uh, I can I like that I overlook that scene earlier in the movie where they're in the hot tub. Yeah. And then I've I seen think like 10 times. Then then also I believe before they show the love scene between um between Griffin and uh, June they show like another couple that are naked in the swimming pool or something like that <laughs> yeah. as well. Yeah. And then yeah. kind of subvert that expectation again. Mhm. Uh, but we've also got a uh, Fred Ward. Got to give a big shout out to Fred Ward for showing up in this film. Yeah, we got to do a Tremors. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, maybe you're not a Tremors guy. I love that movie, but anyway, uh, yeah, it's not bad. It's not bad. Uh, I would just th- the I always think of him. There was like some '80s movie that I can't remember where he was like a kind of a stern father figure in the film. Oh, there was. And I can't really place that movie, but uh, obviously did the same role in, what was it, uh, Road Trip? Do you remember him in Road Trip? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
he was also um, <laughs> one of my like my favorite guilty pleasures. Uh, nobody likes this movie, but uh, I love it. Uh, he was uh, Joe Dirt's father. Oh shit, he was. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> and he talks about positive track. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, I'm I'm definitely down with with uh, Joe Dirt. That's oh, like a man. documentary about the kind of people that I grew up with. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> But uh, we've also got a Whoopi. Our friend Whoopi Goldberg shows up. I a, and I, I love Whoopi in this movie. I loved her. Just, uh, but I, I on it's a weird thing because of the fact that I think every film I've ever seen Whoopi Goldberg in, I think she's fantastic. But uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. But I love Whoopi on camera. Then we had our. We also had Vincent D'Onofrio, who I the really guy was enjoyed. everywhere. Like Vincent D'Onofrio, I think was in like just about every movie made from like 1985 to like 1995. Right, and then when it comes to the remaining cast, it's so <laughs> it's almost impossible to list everyone. But, I think, uh, uh, yeah. Is like, there another? Do you think there's anyone else that we should like mention in, as part of the central cast? Yeah, for recurring, um, I think Dean Stockwell and Richard E. Grant because they show up. You're like halfway into the movie where they do the, they do this great pitch right uh, we're at the re- where they're at the uh, the restaurant and and then they do the pitch like the next day and then we see them at the end of the movie uh, the, the movie habeas corpus that they're doing so I think Dean Stockwell and Richardy e. Grant just like the two writer maybe like writer producer uh, I think they're really the only two people other than the oh and shit um, Lyle love it yeah, he doesn't have a lot of speaking lines. Yeah, he just kind of he just kind of hangs around, lurking, being all creepy. But yeah, those are probably the principal actors um, outside of the numerous, numerous amounts of uh, of cameos, mm-hmm. which I'm going to go through and list uh, some of these that I found kind of interesting. You already mentioned John Cusack, but I thought it was cool to see uh, Gina Gershon, whom I kind of had a, had had a crush on for many years. Yeah. Um, I don't have his name, but there was the wasn't one of the kids, the kid in the office that was sort of uh, he was coming out east and he was interested in like which actresses were single. Mm-hmm. Was he not in Dead Poet Society or one of those movies? Um, he might have been. Now I know who that actor is, but I can't I can't place his name either. I could probably pull it up on like IMDb or something, but. I don't remember if he was in. I mean, he could have been also in the uh, the uh, the wannabe Dead Poet Society school ties. Yeah, but is, is that the one with Brendan Fraser? Maybe. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's the one I was thinking. I'm glad you. Uh, thanks for <laughs> remembering that film. Sorry for saying it was a wannabe, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, fair enough. Uh, we had fucking Martin Mole show up. We had yeah. Harry Belafonte. We had Jeff Goldblum looking extremely. Jeff Goldblum, I believe I saw Jill St. John, was even even showed up. Remind me who Jill St. John is. Jill St. John was an actress. The only thing I remember her from specifically was the Bond film Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. But I'm pretty sure I saw her around. No, um, yeah, she's in it. Let's see, then we had Burt Reynolds, of course. Um. Malcolm McDowell, Andy McDowell. Robbie Jer- McDowell. No, uh, <laughs> Malcolm McDowell. Yeah, right? you said we had two McDowells. 
Yeah. And then uh, even more notably, because he actually has a little a little role as a uh, Jeremy Piven. Yeah. Going bald all the way back in 1992. Yeah, you know, like it's, Im- it's impressive. I think now and they didn't they didn't have a maybe I can't they didn't have a scene together in this movie, but the amount of movies that Jeremy Piven and John Cusack have done together is just like staggering, like just like more mind boggling. Just how many times those two actors appear together. Uh, I thought was, uh, actually I was going to ask you now that I think about it before I forget is no damn it there was uh i was gonna ask maybe i'll wait then i was gonna ask there was somebody that was walking i thought he was in part of the um the tour that piven was giving but it wasn't it was it was something else later on in the film um i was trying to identify a character um maybe you'll remember this it was someone approached griffin at the beginning they had curly black hair and glasses and I feel like he looked he looked sort of familiar, but I couldn't place whom it was. Was it like the, the writer that got on the lot? Yes, yeah. yes. I don't know if I if I can place him. Because I think uh, Griffin gets back to his desk and he asks, how did uh, Adam Simon get in the lot? And I wasn't sure if that was a real name or like, I don't know. It felt like that guy felt, he looked very familiar and I couldn't tell for sure. Like there's so many cameos, like you're wondering, okay, is this... Is this like bit part some legit person, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's literally like over 50 different cameos in this movie. But in terms of, in terms of the acting, the performances, are there, is there anything that really kind of struck you or stood out? To be honest, I really, I didn't, acting wise, I didn't really, not much really kind of stood out for me. Um, Not to say that the acting was like, there wasn't noticeably bad or anything like that, but just, I don't know, there wasn't like a tour de force sort of well, performance the in the movie. This movie, like so many other like Altman movies is so much a ensemble that, I mean, the movie I think succeeds with just in, I mean, the movie is carried and everything about this movie only works because I feel a Tim, you know, Tim Robbins performance, uh, nothing against Cynthia Stevenson, but you know, she was in the movie only for a short amount of time. Same thing. I did like, uh, Greta Schiacci. I, yeah. Again, she I, was I, good actually. Now that you mentioned that. Uh, Fred Ward is always gonna be Fred Ward. I did like Whoopi Goldberg just in the in the the lineup scene where uh, they ha- and they have Lyle Lovett lined up next to Tim Robbins and they've got the the so called like eyewitness and eyewitness um, may or may not uh, correctly plays uh, Tim Robbins, but just the way that uh, Whoopi Goldberg like. Uh, the way that she talks to this woman, I think, is hysterical. Or the scene where Whoopi Goldberg is holding the tampon. Um, just those scenes in general, I just I, I thought those were really strong. But the movie isn't, you know, it it's not that type of movie. You know, right. like it, it's a it's only a love story because of the relationship between Tim Robbins and and Greta Schiacci, uh, or her her Icelandic. Is she Icelandic? We don't really know. We think she might be. But uh, June Gutman's daughter, or daughter, um, whatever, I can't I think I'm pronouncing that fairly accurate. But they are the, the main aspects of this movie. And then, uh, but the, the real star of this movie is Hollywood. That's, that's what this movie is about. This movie is about Hollywood. So you're going to make that more of the focal point right. than yeah. 
than than these specific characters individually. One thing I forgot in terms of acting, just in references, is Brian James was also in Tango and Cash. Yeah, he was as the Cutcher Bloody Fruit guy. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you remember that scene? Oh, I remember his okay. uh, Brian Jones' accent in that movie was right? uh, something special. That's why it kind of. That's like when I was watching this movie. That's the first thing that popped in my head when I saw him. I was like, "Holy shit! It's the cut your bloody throat guy." Yeah, and just Tango another another way that I think that Robert Altman kind of just messes around and plays with uh, expectations. Right, this is a guy that played a replicant, you know, uh, less than ten years earlier, or around ten years earlier, in uh, Blade Runner was in Tango and Cash was in oh god what's another movie i can't think uh i'm forgetting but basically brian jones has played these certain type of roles and now uh he's playing a like a studio boss something you would never ever expect uh brian jones to be would be like a hollywood studio boss where he you know he's this english you know uh thug in tango and cash or you know he's a replicant in um, Blade Runner, or he's in what was that? Um, um, he he played another like uh, creepy dude in the movie Enemy Mine. If you ever saw that in the eighties with uh, Lou Gossett Jr. and the the sane um, uh, Quaid brother uh, Dennis Quaid, um, and God, what else was he in? But anyway. Brian Jones played a certain part all throughout his life. And then he gets his cast as like a studio boss in the player. And it's just not at all what you would ever expect for him to be. Yeah. I guess he's, he's definitely subdued. Even like you would think maybe a studio boss could be a boisterous sort of character. He's mm-hmm. pretty subdued and calm. Like he never raises his voice or yells or does anything no. really extravagant. No. And it's funny. It's like when I was looking him up, I was, I was looking him up to see if that was, if that was indeed, cut your bloody throat guy and i was like oh wait a minute this is this was leon from yeah. blade runner like i didn't even recognize him without that mustache yeah um but yeah so that's really all i've got in the way of actors essentially if you were anybody in 1992 you were probably in this movie apart from maybe like tom cruise i think is really like the only like big name that I don't remember seeing in this film, at, you know, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think, maybe Sylvester Stallone. But anyway, I could probably name a bunch. But there were more, more A-list actors in this movie for its time than I think any other movie of its era, and certainly since. One last shout out to uh, Dina Merrill. I thought she was she was uh, looking pretty attractive for an, for an older woman, and I the only thing I had recognized her from was um, Caddyshack Two. I think she was it. She was like someone's wife in Caddyshack too. She was like part of the an, one of the antagonists of the film. Um, but shout out to Dina. She I think she passed away within recently within the last five or six years. I'm trying to think of who was she? Who was she? I think she was married to like I think Robert Stack was the oh, antagonist. Right, and I think she was Robert right. Stack's wife. Right, right, right. See, I'm trying to think, like, who the hell was she in Caddyshack 2? <laughs> um, what a terrible yet satisfying movie that is for me to watch when I am have nothing else going on. 
Speaking of Quaid's, that's got a pretty solid role by uh, Randy Quaid. Randy Quaid, the crazy Quaid. Oh, man, as the crazy attorney, he's yeah. so money in that movie. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Caddyshack 2. Caddyshack 2. Check it out. Um, but anyways, uh, let's let's move on. Editing-wise, I did want to – this was the, kind of the one editing note that I thought was pretty cool was there was a nice – cut from Griffin killing the snake that was placed in his car to Kahane's girlfriend painting that kind of like she was painting a sort of serpentine line mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. her work. There was a nice little cut there that I thought was pretty cool uh, thematically that just kind of caught my eye that I wanted to bring attention to. That's cool. Didn't, I didn't think about that. That's probably the biggest, that's the only like editing thing that I really noticed that kind of stood out from, that was kind of you know, not that the film wasn't edited well, but one right. thing, little flourish I wanted to point out. How about uh, can you talk cinematography? Um, so cinematography or shots? Because I know where, scenes. yeah, I was gonna say I know where I where I want to start. Maybe we can start maybe I, at the I, beginning. <laughs> I think you have to. I think you have to start at literally at the beginning. So, do you want to take this, or you want I'll, me to? I'll let you. I'll let you. I'll let you go, and then I'll just fill in the gaps. All right, I think you'll uh, do this far more eloquently than me. <laughs> but essentially, just the opening shot. We it's this beautiful long seven minute tracking shot uh, where we're just we're just following the studio and the different conversations that people are going through on their morning. You know, their their morning into work on on the studio, and it just. It's really, really cool because you've got these overlapping uh, dialogue scenes where, where you're tracking somebody and they run into somebody else and you start tracking them and until that uh, that moment has kind of run its course and you move on to somebody else. And all the while, it's kind of meta because you've got Fred Ward talking about, <laughs> about classic Hollywood in these great big sweeping shots. Meanwhile, we're watching one in action. And... Um, it's one of the things that put this movie on the map um, and just something that was just really, really cool. And just specifically, and Fred Ward kind of talks about it, it's something that they didn't do certainly at that era and rarely uh, since. And when people do things like that, it becomes something that people like stop and say, hey, that's kind of a cool scene. Why doesn't anybody else do that anymore? But anyway, please, would uh, say that better than me, please. <laughs> So this is uh, this is the one scene I had actually seen out of the movie before, and in one of my film classes, I can't point out which one it was, but that I did ha- did see that sort of famous tra- sort of tracking shot. Obviously, very reminiscent of A Touch of Evil. I think that's definitely mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. obvious callback. Which, you, if you haven't seen A Touch of Evil, go out and watch. If nothing else, that really well done tracking shot. I. I it's hard to go back and watch those old movies for me, and I think I've said that multiple times on the podcast. But so I didn't, I didn't really quite enjoy the A Touch of Evil as much as I had anticipated. But that shot is is a very cool one, um, and I thought it was really. You already touched on Fred Ward mentioning referencing that shot mm-hmm. as the shot is going on. So the pretty awesome metatextual thing. Um, one even kind of cooler little detail about Fred Ward's dialogue is that he says that his, either his grandfather or his father was the key grip on a touch of evil, which I thought was kind of a 
cool little industry. You know what I mean? That's definitely like the kind of cool little industry insight that somebody like Robert Altman would inject into the film, which is ostensibly about Hollywood, you know? Yep. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, But yeah, it's that definitely very kind of objective eye of God camera style Mm -hmm. at the beginning. And then we sort of, what, Another thing that was kind of unusual that you don't see a lot is sort of the way, and he even mentioned this during the director's uh, sort of commentary, was when he would, and he did this at the beginning, filming Griffin through the through the windows as he's having the conversation with um, either his assistants or he's listening to the pitches, you know, that camera set up outside the window. That's not something you see a lot, it feels like. I don't know. Am, am I yeah. crazy? No, no, you don't see that at all. And I think, too, he also would be playing, and he mentions this as well, about playing kind of with foreground, middle ground, background, and those relationships, too. Mm-hmm. And you'll notice this a lot, He and he even picks up on it during the sort of breakfast scene where he meets Brian Jones. That morning, it's where the Burt Reynolds sort of asshole dialogue <laughs> comes in. Uh, yeah, the breakfast scene I think is just awesome, and just the way that there are just there are several different conversations going on at different yeah again uh, near ground, far ground, uh, middle ground, basically just and as a camera just kind of moves between them, it just again just technically I just think is very 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 smart, really neat, and again just not something that you see a lot. Um, many technical achievements I think just are just visually apart from the fact of its era. You know, if if this movie would come out in 2019 with 2019 fashion, and the the concepts would be the same, I think you might have a little, maybe a little deeper, a, a deeper uh, uh, love affair with this movie. Um, one really slick camera move that I wanted to point out was I really I I love this shit. Was so it's whenever Griffin comes back to his Range Rover, and he's got the postcard. And I think it's a Humphrey Bogart postcard, like holding a gun. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's in his windshield wiper. And it's like he, so he gets into the car. He turns on his windshield wipers. The windshield wiper blade carries the card over to his, his hand. And the camera sort of follows it to his hand. It's just a real, oh, it's so awesome. I thought that yeah. was just such a cool little flourish of and the just, camera. Oh, I, yeah, I always thought that was cool. And I just always thought it made uh Tim Robbins look like an absolute boss. <laughs> yeah, for real, right? <laughs> that was so slick. Um, something interesting that I picked up on in the um, director's commentary was the the pool party scene. So just to give some insight, the it took them like a half a day to, I think he said a half a day to light that scene at the pool. Mm which is seems insane like mm-hmm. i guess there was there were some mirrored elements and then i think with the water as well so just getting that right light was but yeah can you imagine spending like 6 to 7 8 hours just getting lights set up yeah, for a no, scene that... that really like does it really have much like there's not a lot of stuff going on i mean you have a lot of like physical things going on but in terms of plot dialogue it's not super like there's you know what i mean now that you're talking about that the pools the the first pool scene the one yes. with harry belafonte and, yeah exactly. uh, Jeff the party. yeah 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 that one 
Because I don't think I, there, nothing stood out as far as yeah, like I said, plot or dialogue that was really um, all that. No, it was. Intense. It was just look how many uh, famous people we could have in this one scene. Right. Yeah, you've got like Jack Lemon is is at the piano. I think. Yeah, Jack Lemon playing a fucking piano. <laughs> And then Goldblum shows up in his, like, Kooji sweater. Oh, dude, that sweater. <laughs> um, let's see. And that, um, yeah, Harry Belafonte was there. Was uh, I think his wife was, too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I, mean, I couldn't point her out, but I'm in just, like, researching the film. And I think, was that the scene where that one kid that, you know, that flew out? He, he then he had his date, and it was, like, Kathy Ireland. Huh. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um... Trying to think of who else was in that. Yeah, Kathy, it was random, but like Kathy Ireland was the it supermodel at that time. Uh, but yeah, um, uh, another kind of cool quote from the the DP that I thought was really interesting. They um, he just says he said, "There's only one place to put the camera, and you find it," which I thought was kind of a artsy philosophical sort of. Yeah, that sounds very DP, doesn't it? <laughs> right. It's kind of true, though. It's like when you when you know, then you know. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, just kind of like continuing on my my favorite, uh, just like shot um, or just sequence in the movie, just was the the, the phone conversation between uh, Tim Robbins and um, uh, Greta Schiacci, where you know he, he was going to find where David Kahane, the the writer. The would-be um, um, writer that's threatening Tim Robbins's character, and you just have this, just like the beautiful shot where him looking at her, like from outside in, you know, like inside while she's painting, and they're having this phone conversation, and just kind of looking, but she can't see him, but he can see her, and it's very, very like creepy, um, and I think. I just think that whole sequence is really awesome, and I might be crazy, but I think I, I might have like heard this on like pop-up video or some shit yeah. uh that part of that whole scene is what inspired kevin williamson when he wrote scream um with that that whole like because they're talking about you know do you like movies or whatever <laughs> and the whole the whole That's thing with, and that movie was like you know what's your favorite scary movie and the whole thing is in, in that movie we're only tracking drew barrymore's perspective we don't see the guy on the other end looking you know we don't see him until later on um, but I, I read that somewhere, like I said, it could have been pop-up video for all I know. Uh, Interesting. but yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, and I always, and I always thought that was a really, really, again, very eerie, very creepy because he's literally just like just obsessed or just fascinated with her, um, as he's asking about this other guy and are talking about movies and then what makes her really interesting to him is when she says that she doesn't watch movies, you know, she doesn't like you know that 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 world doesn't interest her, which is completely fascinating and mind blowing to him because of the fact that that that's his entire world. So I like that scene. Um, kind of a technical note too that I picked up from the director's uh, commentary from the cinematographer was that in order to shoot the movie theater scene where they're actually he's actually in the theater mm-hmm. watching bicycle thief um apparently he had to the it was a really low lit scene and they were trying to do something more interesting uh for that scene because there's you know what i mean there's a certain kind of way that 
typically those interior of a movie theater, like there's a familiar film, like look for them, you know what I mean? In right. terms of the lighting. Yeah. And they really had to push the film stock to it's like almost its breaking point in terms of what, what it could handle in, in a low light situation, which I thought was just kind of an interesting that is challenge. Cool. I, like, I, I, I didn't see that. That's awesome. Um, I mean, there were a lot of cool, I don't, and I don't know if this is necessarily cinematography or just directing or s- storytelling, but little things where like the camera lingers on the murder on the Orient Express poster after he meets with uh, Whoopi Goldberg for the first time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Little things like that, you know, those were definitely abundant. And those callbacks to the movie posters, I thought was an interesting kind of thematic device and element too yeah and even just uh even like a picture of like alfred hitchcock you know just like the, uh, just like things that have other uses of things to kind of like drive up like suspense and and uncertainty and yeah just visually just some really really neat cues that were used in the movie while it's on my mind um have you ever seen the uh the bicycle thief uh no i have not that's sad. Neither have I. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I know about it. Just never have seen it. Yeah, same. I was just kind of curious. Yeah, I know at one point in time, I'm pretty sure I, I saw this, that it was on like the BFI or like the Sight and Sound like top 10 list, but it's no longer on there. Are there I any... know with like the Sight and Sound like top 10 list. I'm not as, no, I'm not too familiar Okay, so not that this has really any real significance other than like every 10 years, sight and sound, like the, they do this, uh, like their, their, their top 10 movies and every time that they do a new one, I think they do it like, like 82, 92, 2002, 2012. Like it's always a big what to do, what movies are going to be on this list. And you can always see kind of like, what movies are considered like the the big movies of their of their time uh, i'm pretty sure it's like the like the bfi like top 10 or and it, it's the oh god I, uh, yeah the the critics top 10 poll that's what it is so yeah like i just went ahead and pulled it up so like in 1952 i guess it was called bicycle thieves yeah um and then, so, like, the first time they ever did one, it was, like, the number one movie ever made. And then fast forward to, like, 1962, it, like, disappeared off the list. And it's never been on the list ever since. Yet this was recognized as, like, the number one movie of all time when they first created this list. But anyway, never seen it. I just, I, my whole my whole knowledge of The Bicycle Thief or Bicycle Thieves is the fact that it was the number one movie of all time. The first time this very prestigious uh, critics top 10 list and then it just disappeared into existence after that man there was some dialogue too about it as well like in one of their meetings where they said something about oh what's the last film you saw and uh, i think uh then griffin says the bicycle thieves and they're like oh no it's an art art movie doesn't count yeah that was a pretty good little callback too um but in terms of visuals cinematography visual storytelling or were there any other kind of moments that stand out or do you wanted to cover? I don't, not necessarily that necessarily stand out um I, I i feel the whole movie everything that we see on camera 
I think there is something that's really impressive and neat for when you put it in the context of the movie of its era. And I think Robert Altman um, was doing, I think he was onto something. I mean, this movie, I think, just visually looks cool. Again, apart from just the overall fashion and like the set design of what was going on in 1992 LA. Yeah. Um, God damn it. You know what? We have to talk about, I think, maybe my favorite scene visually that I didn't reference already was the actual confrontation between Griffin and David Kahane, where you have that red light. Mm, mm-hmm. I'm almost killing myself for not like making that. <laughs> it's like that, the opening tracking shot, that scene where you have sort of that fluorescent red glow, that was really beautiful that was kind of a moment that stands out in that sort of back alley yeah but uh, move, moving on to writing uh, we'll just say at least to introduce things that Michael to- uh, Tolkien actually wrote this as a book first and he also wrote the screenplay which I think rarely happens probably maybe might not even happen today in hollywood yeah um i don't i don't know if it would i mean i'm sure it happens sometimes and granted you know there are a lot of liberties taken obviously i mean there's so much ad-libbing going on in this movie um but overall you have michael tolkien's uh it's credit for the screenplay because it was his book and i think the overall story is his so the screenwriting credit I, i believe he still gets but I think so much of the actual dialogue were just the actors, you know, saying whatever they felt at that moment. Whether and that, that's not even just like cameos. A lot of like Tim Robin, a lot of Tim Robbins, Tim Robbins' dialogue itself was uh, very much improvised. There was a lot of irony and just poking fun of things. Um, Particularly that graduate part two pitch with oh, that's so the great. actual screenwriter or one of the screenwriters from the original graduate. Yeah, and just the whole idea. Um, so they, so the whole one of the things, right, is uh, Griffin Mill, played by Tim Robbins. He's our studio executive. He listens to these pitches all day, right? He listens to thousands of these pitches all day, and many of them are good, many of them are bad. But the, the writer of The Graduate comes in to pitch The Graduate 2. takes place 25 years older. Uh, Dustin Hoffman's character is 25 years older. I forget uh, the actress's name. She's 25 years older. Mrs. Robinson has had a stroke. She lives with them. She can't speak. And, and he's like, all right, that's interesting. Is it going to be funny? He's like, yeah, it's going to be funny. It's going to be weird. But with a stroke. with a heart heart. and that's the whole yeah but uh it's just so good just and what i think i loved is that writer just went ahead and went in when he did that scene just went in and pitched the graduate too and it's hysterical and it's twisted and it's messed up but uh, i love that i love that bit it's i think and especially looking back now a moment like that is even funnier in the sense of that like the amount of remakes and unwanted or unwanted in quotes sequels right. that we get. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
another really good uh, biting part of or bit of irony I thought was whenever Tim Robbins was giving the speech and he just had a little just this little moment where he said movies are art now more than ever like there was a certain irony to him saying that and being sort of this you know what I mean executive that obviously is dismissive to some degree when it comes to writers and people like Kahane you know yep Mm mm-hmm now more than ever. I think that was like like the the movie like like tagline. Damn yeah, I mean, it! I put this note in here for writing, but um, it was another one of those moments where they uh, would linger on a poster, and there was like an M for murder poster before he goes to the the desert with uh, with Kahane's widow. <laughs> and they call him like Mister M, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That too. Yeah. That. the bit at the well i'm maybe i should go back up okay um the bit at the end with bruce willis rescuing julia roberts traffic was a bitch <laughs> and it's like this typical hollywood formulaic hit bonnie ends up getting fired for criticizing uh the movie at the screening because um, the writers sold themselves for for the buck the yeah. one thing that the writers said earlier exactly that they wouldn't do totally undercutting everything I yep. also thought there was a lot of irony, too, because Griffin had initially set up Larry Levy, set up, or, yeah, is Larry Levy the Peter Gallagher character, right? Yes. So he had kind of set him up with this habeas corpus script to, like, kind of fuck him over, to destroy, kind of ruin his ascendancy, and mm-hmm. it ends up, and then, like, now Griffin is, like, the studio head, and it's, a, you know, looking like it's going to be a pretty successful film. Yeah, uh, he he did it to kind of yeah to ruin Larry Levy's career, and then in the end, Griffin ends up getting the job because Brian Jones loses his job, right? Yeah, and and then Griff yeah, and then the so to go back and I think we like had mentioned like the, so this movie Habeas Corpus is kind of just like a um, it's kind of like the movie that we're watching within the movie. And where they're always talking about Bruce Willis and Julie Roberts, they end up getting Julie Roberts and Bruce Willis for this movie. The writers sell themselves out um, for you know uh, for that, and then Bonnie, uh, Julie, uh, Cynthia Stevenson loses her job for that, and and then the next scene we get uh, is the phone conversation with Larry Levy, Griffin Mill, and our disgruntled writer which I love. I love that. And he's like a real shit bag. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And now I don't know if you you may have done the research, but it took, I I never did the research. It only just took me about, you know, eight or nine times to realize the voice on, of uh, the, uh, the, the writer sending the death threats, who he was in the movie. Yeah. So he's the guy that's eulogizing Kahane. Yeah. Funeral, right? Pastor, you looked that up, didn't you? I actually, I think they referenced that in the director's commentary. Oh, see. Otherwise, I totally... Director's commentary. (laughs) (laughs) I totally never would have caught it. Um, Another thing of note there, too, if you go back and watch, is the outfits they're wearing, Kahane and that writer are wearing, are like almost identical. They're both wearing, I think, the same blazer and then like a red shirt underneath. And I think the same color pants and maybe boots. I, d- I don't remember specifically Damn, I what the that. rest of the outf- outfit was, but that was definitely referenced 
when I was watching that. Um, let's see. But yeah, I also thought that was pretty clever too, talking about a shitbag exec. <laughs> and then just like, oh, the happy ending, you know, he you know, has his wife and the kid, blah, 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 blah. And it's so great because earlier in the movie, they, they talk about like the, the end title card and like the, the end of the movie habeas corpus that like the final line of dialogue was traffic was a bitch. And then at the very end of this movie, the very last line of dialogue was traffic was a bitch. And they, then they cut with like the, the end title card, just like the perfect Hollywood ending, which was what we were watching within this movie habeas corpus. And it was just, again, just another beautiful thing that Robert Altman did was, you know, just paralleling something that we were, we were just told within a movie that we should hate. And then we watch at the end of this movie and we're getting the exact same ending. You know, I, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but at some point I actually questioned to myself, did, because remember how the story of habeas corpus sort of changed. I was thinking that I felt like maybe that same shifting of tone of the story, like if those tracked one another, you know what I'm saying? Like habeas corpus going from this, very like serious film to this Hollywood, you know, typical Hollywood kind of popcorn thing. And I felt like the narrative of the player also sort of in a way, like it incorporated a lot of those elements that were discussed, like you kind of mentioned about like sex and we've got to have Bruce Willis and so forth. You know what I mean? Like some, a lot of those elements were like directly incorporated into, and especially in like the second half mm-hmm. of the movie. I think I think it was absolutely intended. Everything that we saw on camera, they they everything that we see on camera is at least referenced at some point in the film. It's somewhere, some you know something or another. So I, the movie was just like meta to the max. And then my last note on the on the writing was the that very and you mentioned this too the sort of dramatic irony of that very tense like lineup scene. That Griffin's going in, and he's like fi- figuring, like he's definitely going to get picked out of the lineup, and then the the eyewitness ends up picking up uh, picking out the cop <laughs> played so by Lyle Lovett. It's so good, and why wouldn't you pick him out of the lineup? He's creepy as hell. Even more ironic, adding to that though, is that he, Griffin is even wearing the same suit that he wore yeah. the night that he killed Kane, and. I'm, <laughs> If I'm not mistaken, it was all kind of it was like disheveled a little bit too. Yeah, he looks kind of like he looks disheveled when he's standing up there. He's just kind of like he he just has this vacant look in his eyes, which is very like similar to like the like even after he killed David Kahane and like the, the the guilt kind of sets in. He he looks empty inside and he looks empty inside and uh, at the fo- at the at the lineup. It's hysterical. Any other sort of uh, writing notes you want to discuss? Nah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I've got a lot of miscellaneous sort of stuff. Some of it's just really neither here nor there, but just stuff I wanted to comment on was uh, Tim Robbins' straight baby face. Man, he looks young, mm-hmm. but did not have the teeth capped yet. I did notice that. Obviously, we talked about the '90s fashion in this film, so we've got big suits, lots of shoulder pads. It's an unapologetically 90s vibe for sure. Big suits. Um, 
it was kind of interesting to see like Megadeth and Skid Row posters on the walls um, at whenever there's a confrontation with Kahane. And where was that? That was in uh, was it in Pasadena? Yeah, because I think they actually did shoot at the like that was an actual location that they shot at. Was it the actual theater itself? Oh, really? It was like a legit theater. Yeah. Um. There was a a mullet <laughs> on the guy at the restaurant where Griffin's getting pitched the movie by um fucking what's the guy Al? You know what I'm talking about um the fucking uh, Quantum Leap guy. Oh yeah 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 uh Dean Stockwell. Dean Stockwell yeah. Uh man that was an epic mullet. Wow <laughs> wow. Woo. Um I thought it was kind of. I don't know that the rattlesnake in the car was a little weird. Like, I don't know. That was such a strange device. You know what I mean? Thought that was kind of bizarre. Weird. Like you would, I don't know. It was just kind of, I don't know. It felt like old, like, I don't know. You just would, I don't think you would see somebody. I don't know. It just felt kind of weird to me. It felt out of place in the rest of the movie. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't know, that's something you see in kind of like a TV, I don't know, in like a TV series, like Fall Guy or, you know what I mean? Something like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> something like that. I don't know, just out of place, I thought. Um, supposedly, I never found this, but there's supposedly some reference to The Vanishing in this movie somewhere. I don't know yeah, what the hell it is. Yeah, you said that. I, I, don't, I, I don't know what that would have been. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Um, but if you look on IMDb, IMDb has like... I think there's a specific se- section where they'll go through and they'll list like different references. What, are, you, are you doing cheat codes? For this? <laughs> uh, Konami code for sure. <laughs> but I never but, could find it, and I know I mentioned yeah. it to you, and I was wondering if you ever like noticed anything on no, maybe no, like no. a rewatch. Oh, so or I, I watched it. I watched it. Um, you know, again, fairly you know recently, probably about two or three weeks ago was the last time I saw it. But I remember like actively looking for it because you had said something about the vanishing, and I'm like, "Huh, let me see what it could possibly be." And I don't, I don't know what it would have been. It must be something super subtle. Yeah. Um, we have another mullet sighting on Gary Busey. <laughs> yeah, Gary Busey was in this too. Yeah, that's right. It's a it's a hell of a mullet as well. I already mentioned this, but I uh, just want to reiterate Robert Altman talking about the actors doing their cameos and how they never pretend to be themselves. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a really interesting idea to unravel. Because it's like, yeah, what do you, you know what I mean? It's like kind of that classic or like tropey sort of conversation with a filmmaker is like, well, what's, you know, or an actor is like, oh, what's my motivation in this scene? You know, things like that. Mm-hmm. But to portray like, oh, you're just being yourself <laughs> out having lunch or something. Yeah, like if uh, so, yeah, they're just being yourself out at lunch, kind of like the not like on extras where they would have cameos of actors playing themselves, but very eccentric versions of themselves. Did you ever see like any like Ricky Gervais's like extras? At I never all? watched extras. Oh, dude, it's so great. Back. I've heard good things though. Yeah, yeah, but you'll have, you know. Uh, Shit! Uh, first one that comes to mind: Daniel Radcliffe playing Daniel Radcliffe, but he's like an oversexed teenager <laughs> playing. Like, oh my god! Yeah, that sounds like, hilarious. He, like he ha- he's walking around with like an unwrapped condom, 
like so it's ready for action <laughs> and it but you've got every like each episode is another like actor being themselves but it's just a really really twisted version of themselves we have uh, i thought it was interesting or ironic to see lily tomlin showing up in this film and sort of having like i don't, I don't know if she she wasn't being super difficult in the film but kind of a little bit and it just made me so great i love that just uh her and homeboy from uh the leftovers yeah Uh, scott glenn scott glenn they're 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 chemistry like i want to see them on camera together because they were fantastic they were really good for sure but um it's funny like i don't know if you've ever seen this video but it's on youtube you can find from the there's like footage of lily tomlin getting into it with uh david o russell on the set of I Heart Huckabees. I think there's like two separate scenes that you can look up and see like they're totally getting into it. It's pretty funny. Mm-hmm. Like in that in that context, going back and looking at this, it made me kind of laugh. And I don't know if I've ever told you the stories about David O. Russell being like a lunatic himself. I think we've covered I'm that. I'm pretty yeah. sure we did, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I couldn't remember or not. Um, some other interesting tidbits. Tim Robbins wore a prosthesis on his penis to make it look like he was uncircumcised. Really? Yeah. And so that scene where he gets out of the out of the bath. Yeah, because I remember you know you see you see his wang. I never like I didn't realize he wore a prosthesis uh, to make him look like he was uncircumcised. That's just a weird a weird. Uh, okay, whatever. <laughs> you know, neither here nor there. Yeah, whatever. Whatever you got to do. Um, one kind of cool note too here just randomly is that, uh, Dylan Tishner was an apprentice editor on the movie and he's worked on an ama- like look up Dylan Tishner on IMDb and look at the amount of movies he's worked on tons of really good ones. A lot of, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson films. Uh, let's see thematically. I mean, I think we've sort of touched on kind of the biggest thing is this element of I guess metatextuality of the film mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the sense of sort of the elements of the plot are getting delivered of the actual movie or sort of get, getting delivered and applied to this movie within the movie and then that's sort of influencing the actual movie that we're watching right which I think is probably the coolest thematic aspect outside of like I said earlier about the actors themselves performing the cameos and portraying themselves in that sort of question of, well, who, who's the real actor or like, what's, who are they? You know what I mean? Because right. there's that, the actor themselves, they're portraying themselves in a fake reality. I don't know. There's something kind of super interesting about that idea to me for some mm-hmm. reason. But, um, is there anything, uh, in terms of thematics that, you wanted to sort of go after nothing that I, I don't feel up. that we haven't already kind of covered. You know what I mean? Like, um, not yeah. Again, nothing that we haven't already kind of discussed and unpackaged. If if anybody listening is interested, there is a kind of interesting book that I found called um, "A Different Kind of Suture" by Cynthia Barron that talks a little bit about uh, the player. And some of its uh, postmodern elements, which I will try and put a link to in the show notes. But uh, 
yeah, I guess we'll go ahead and we'll wrap up the show for this week. Do you, unless there's anything else you want to say before we uh, we shut her down. Uh, nothing necessarily that I want to say. Just a question. Okay. Now that got? yeah, now that you've seen it, and even if it's not necessarily that it's right up your alley, do you at least feel like? I don't know, fulfilled, like you, you, you've seen something, you, it, it opened up your eyes in a way of, of just seeing, like, well, that, that's, I, I'm, I'm a better film viewer because I have seen this movie. Yeah, I mean, oh yeah, I'm, like I said, okay. I'm definitely, don't, yeah, don't let me not liking the film, like there's two levels of it, right? There's an appreciation for the film as a student of the medium, and there's an appreciation of the film as like just an audience participant you know what I mean right and I can separate those out and I you know I have a lot of respect for the craft all at all levels whether it be from the director down to the writer to the editors <laughs> to the key grip you know what I mean right right I've right. got respect and love for everybody that uh, contributes to the film because I know how difficult it is so just just keep that in mind awesome but I'm a fucking critic okay <laughs> I'm a critic I'm well, like, I'm like David Kahane, okay? Well, I mean, I think you're, yeah, I mean, you're, yeah, sure. You're a critic, um, but critics also love this movie. This one, a couple Golden Globes, was nominated for a multitude of Oscars, I think. I know it was nominated for at least, like, Best Picture, but, like, Unforgiven got it that year, and I think nothing was going to beat that movie that yeah. year. Yeah, that's but a tough one. But this was another, this was um, another Tim Robbins movie that was very well-respected at its era that didn't get... The awards, kind of in the same way like Shawshank Redemption, like a year or two after this movie, was nominated for a bunch of things but didn't really win any awards. Just but, uh, just a movie that was very very well respected for its day, and yeah, critically uh, appreciated. And I just remember watching this movie for the first time. It was on like, I don't know. I remember being like fourteen or fifteen years old, like watching it on like Cinemax or something at like one in the morning because when I was like a teenager, I had like insomnia like i would just be up like for like as many kids are right like just up all hours of the night this movie came on like one o'clock and i just watched them like ah, oh, this is freaking cool and uh it just kind of stuck with me just some of the things that uh the the movie kind of discovers and just like the movie within the movie and it was really just the film just introduced introduced me to like meta as a concept and just like huh i, I didn't you know at 14 15 years old i didn't really even know what what that is you know or what that what that really meant as a whole and it was just something that's so for me that, that's what drew me to this movie is just kind of like this idea of being self-aware self-referential uh, you know what i mean and that was something that just blew my mind and just the way that it kind of looked at and uh, like held a mirror up at hollywood but what i'm fascinated is i'm pretty sure that hollywood's even like worse and more judgmental and more um, terrifying than anything that we just saw in yeah, this movie. Exactly. <laughs> right. Like, especially with Harvey Weinstein and like, yeah, all yeah. the pedo stuff that's sort of yeah. <laughs> in the air, like the meat, so the me too stuff. It's like, Whoa. <laughs> yep. I mean, can you imagine doing this movie about like someone like Don Simpson? <laughs> you know what I mean? Dude. Yeah. It'd be so much crazier. So it's almost like this is like a super tame version of that, like from the early 90s. Like, right, right, yeah, right. It's just crazy. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, to your point, I think maybe that was, that's the biggest challenge too, right? It's like 
certain films, it's like you have to sort of see them in their, like their, you can appreciate them better in their original context. Like if I had seen this movie earlier on, I probably would, as a fan, like it a little bit more than I do now. Just because that, you know what I mean? It's influenced the subsequent, you know, 20 plus years or 20 so or so years plus of, uh, of filmmaking and metatextual stuff and probably even, you know, plays into something like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, right? To a degree, right. you know what I mean? Yep. Like it's it's ripples throughout, you know? It's kind of like going back and watching Citizen Kane, you don't really pick up on how really like ahead of its time or like those sort of technical innovations look, you know, passe at this point but at the time like that was a super cutting edge thing so a lot of times it's hard to sort of have that same experience with the movie when you're coming to it you know all these years later when there's you know under certain kind of circumstances sure but uh we'll go ahead and uh we'll wrap up there i do hope to uh, hope we can do this again soon i already have a movie chosen for us Oh, what is it? What do we have? I am ready to check out that weird movie that I told you about, Possession, by Andre Zulowski. Okay, all right, Possession, it is. With uh, it's uh, it's got what's it? It's got Sam Neill. It's supposed to be crazy. Oh, right. It's supposed right. to be weird. Yeah. Crazy okay. cosmic horror bizarreness. So yeah, it took me a second, but once you said Sam Neill, I'm like, oh shit, I know what movie you're talking about now. See, see if you can find that, and uh, if not, let me know, and we'll, we'll figure something out. All right, bud. Thank you again. I'm, I'm oh, looking yeah. forward to being Absolutely. on again. Yeah, thank you again, and uh, this is Podcast, care of Cooper Cherry, signing off. Thanks again, Andrew. All right, thank you. Good night.